Welcome to Zero to a Million, where we interview multimillionaires on how they scaled their business to $500 million. Uh, 10 years ago? Nah, there are plenty of those types of podcasts out there. We want to provide you with strategies real time while we scale Unstack from zero to a million. Every week, you can learn from our successes and failures. Plus, get tips from our mentors and advisors. While we implement, you learn. While we learn, we scale. Welcome to the Zero to a Million podcast. Hey everyone, this is Carter, the producer of the podcast. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Unstack YouTube channel. We've been posting video highlights of the podcast for the past few weeks. If you want to support us, please check out this week's video. You don't want to miss this one. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Zero to a Million, brought to you by Unstack. I'm your host, Zach Rigo. Today, I'm joined by Nathan Latka, host of the Top Entrepreneurs podcast, author of How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital, and CEO of FounderPath, the new way SaaS founders are getting money without selling equity. Nathan, thank you for coming on today. Zach, you bet, man. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really excited. I've been following your podcast for a long time. Uh, love how you've built, uh, obviously, your personal brand, which I think is a really interesting story. But before we dive into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your college experience at Virginia Tech, um, your first business you built, how you funded that business, and, and how that's changed your outlook on funding uh, SaaS startups moving forward. Yeah, happy to do that. I'm curious, real quick, what got you addicted to the podcast? How'd you find it and why do you listen? It's a great question. Um, I was interviewing for a job and I was interviewing with the CEO and I searched the CEO and I listened to every uh, podcast that he had been on and yours happened to be one of them. And uh, you are very direct, quick hitting, dense. You ask the questions that I don't think a lot of founders like to talk about, the business economics. And I love that stuff. When I was at WordStream, I was always asking people, you know, from a marketing perspective, what's your CPA? You know, what's your LTV? And when the numbers didn't make sense, I was the first one to be like, you're screwed. Like, this isn't going to work much longer. Uh, so I, I kind of latched on to what you were asking and why, and, and it went from there. Well, I love that. Yeah, I, I joke. Maybe not. Maybe it's true. I don't know. But I joke and say I'm the most sued podcaster because the boards of these companies hear the interview and go, please, please don't release it. Don't release it. There's too much information. <laughs> but look, the reason I do what I do is because I got screwed over pretty hardcore back when I was 19. I was racing across the very cold drill field in Southwest mountains of Virginia, Blacksburg, Virginia. I was attending Virginia Tech and I hustled my way to build basically, it was about a twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month software company called Heyo. And one day I got this inbound email from an investor saying, we'd love to invest. And Zach, I had no idea what investing meant. I literally replied, what does that mean? Uh, right. And um, eventually it ended up them putting in a two million, two and a half million dollars into the company. And the reason that was an issue was, um, and in fact, I got my legal team was not happy that I put this in the book, but I literally put this in the book on page 243. You'll see this LOI that I got right there from eye contact and you'll yep. see here the actual price that they were going to pay to acquire my first company and the issue with this was it was a six and a half million dollar offer and i couldn't accept it because the founders wanted or the investors wanted like a 100x return so that's why i ended up launching the podcast and saying you know what i'm going to only focus on you know bootstrap founders building a great living making profitable cash flows from their SaaS businesses 
So um, I contact Raleigh Company. I'm actually in Raleigh, North Carolina. There's a few great tech companies here. They're they're one of them. Um, so that's interesting, right? You, you built this business. It's obviously at a scale that I think a lot of startups are like scratching and clawing to get to, right? Like getting from traction to, to 30,000 in MRR is not easy. Um, what ended up being the outcome from from the business and and were you able to get them that return or was it the worst decision they've ever made? It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the worst decision they ever made because everybody wanted in. I mean, we were oversubscribed, all the things you always read about in the press, right? We had all that going for us. The issue was it wasn't the best thing for me, the yeah. founder. It's not the best thing for you guys listening right now, dragging and dropping together no code tools to launch your MVP, passing your first $1,000 in revenue. A lot of people like don't realize many of these press outlets are in the back pockets of VCs, right? TechCrunch is in the back pocket of the largest VCs to perpetrate a story or, or stick out there a story that the only successful path is raising a bunch of capital at high valuations and IPOing. And I'll tell you what, and I didn't know this. I only know this because I've interviewed over 3,000 founders now for my podcast, The Top Entrepreneurs. And you realize the happiest people I interview are the ones that are doing five or 10 million bucks a year in revenue with one to two million in EBITDA with full control. So they pay themselves cash flow. They have beautiful kids. They go on relaxing vacations. They have blank calendars and they're never stressed. I mean, this is the life you want. So you, I think, shared um, a really interesting Excel. I believe it, it was either curated by you, which I'm assuming it was. And it was basically a database uh, outlining it might have been like the top 50 bootstrapped companies versus the top 50, you know, VC funded and how the um, how the CEO or partners or founders exited those businesses or, or, or what their equity was in the end. Like that's that stuff that's just not out there, right? Like these are these are private companies in most cases, so it's not always public information. But I think that's so powerful for people to see because the output's huge. What people don't realize is, and VCs listening will try and hit back at me. By the way, I get, you know, I was viciously attacked on Twitter last week because there's a certain person in the back pocket of VC firms. And what it is, is, you know, when a company like Zoom Info and Henry go public, you know, Henry was in a pretty good position. He only owned 10% of the company at IPO, which was worth over a billion dollars in terms of his stake. But what people don't realize is, when the company was only doing back 20 million in revenue, Henry took a $75 million secondary. He took, like, that was his exit. He didn't know that it was going to go on and IPO and all this stuff, right? So he used all this to his advantage and ultimately was able to get not just one payout, but a second payout pre IPO and then another payout at IPO. So this sort of structure, I think, is really important to understand. And it's what I advocate for founders. It's not always about growing a bigger pie. It's how do you grow a big enough pie where you're happy, you have freedom, and you have everything you want when you originally launched your company in the first place. As you mentioned, you've obviously stirred up some controversy. I think you've done an amazing job building your personal brand, which has led to kind of this snowball effect. And I think probably got you to an outcome I don't even know if you were planning for. You seem very calculated in everything you do. But uh, I'm just a good. I'm just a. I'm just a good guy. I just do what yeah. I love. So, so you said something on a podcast I thought was really interesting. There's, uh, if everyone had to like you at one percent or a hundred percent, you want them in one of those two ends. If they're at fifty percent, they're they're worthless to you. You also then carry that into it's much easier to get people to hate you than to like you, which totally fair and makes a lot of sense. Um, but you've taken this, you built an audience, 
spoken with founders uh, around a topic I think you're really passionate about because of your previous startup experience and you've turned it into now a business. Was that, when did you think Founders Path was like a business and was it something that you were thinking about the whole time you were interviewing folks and creating this database or was it something that you curated the database and you're like, oh wow, here's an interesting way to put this to use? You have to start off with who you want to help, right? And the people I want to help is who I am. Like I was a bootstrap founder when I was 18, 19 in college. I then got screwed and I will always be a bootstrap founder. And now I understand how to help bootstrap founders. So I didn't know what to build for bootstrap founders back in 2015 after I sold. I just made the bet that if I built a massive media brand around bootstrap founders, that I'd figure out how to help them even more later on. And so that's how Founder Path came to be. But again, the podcast continues to grow. You know, yes, one in every thousand interviews I do blows up and goes really crazy and ends up in the press. And that's fine. But it's less than 0.1%, right, of folks that are unhappy when they come on. And so that's going to happen. And it's fun. And I don't worry about it a ton. The second piece is, is the podcast led to a big book deal. And so now, you know, our brand is in every airport. It's, we have distribution. It sits there. It's like a free billboard. And then people also buy it and read it. And we ended up hitting the Wall Street Journal bestseller list building that. So and you guys have seen the book. I've held it up a couple of times, right? And then lastly, that media brand or the book deal ended up enabling us to go do a big deal to launch this magazine, right? So the magazine now goes out to almost 10,000 SaaS founders and investors every single month. And we charge $29 per issue. So it's a profitable magazine in 2021. Through all of this media, Zach, the inbound I kept getting was, Nathan, we want to get capital, but we don't want to give up control. We don't want to have to set up a board. We don't also want to go over the bank and have to fax over wet signature documents that take six months to close. So there was this need in the marketplace where capital could be faster and easier than a bank, but way less dilutive than venture capital. And that's when I said, you know what, I'm just going to put up some of my own money, go raise some of our investors back in 2019 and start doing my own deals with SaaS founders where we specifically took their monthly recurring revenue and just turned it into upfront MRR, uh, upfront ARR cash they could reinvest. And that's what FounderPath is today. So I love it. And, and one of the big catalysts, right, in the financing world is a credit score. All right, you're going to loan money to somebody under the assumption based on historical data that they're going to be able to pay it back. You've been able to take that from a, a personal, you know, mechanism or or even uh, a corporate mechanism with, let's say, like real estate or commercial real estate, and turn it into something that works for SaaS. How have you done that, and, and really protected yourself against a bunch of defaults that end up, you know, putting this business upside down? Well, we've seen and we sit on a ton of data, right? So over fifteen hundred SaaS founders have connected to FounderPath, which means we sit on almost eight on almost eight billion dollars of revenue annually and almost wow. seven billion of expenses. So it's a lot of data. We can look at all this data and basically predict which companies based off pure metrics. So we don't see gender, we don't see geography, we don't see location. We don't know if you're a CRM tool or a DevOps tool. We just look at the metrics and we can pretty accurately predict who's going to win and who's going to lose. And we like to then find people that we think are going to end up winning and enable them to pull capital from founder path. We have founders now taking about a million dollars per week from FounderPath. So we'll put out almost 52 million this year 
across about, you know, somewhere between 300 and 1,000 founders. We're not quite sure where it's going to pan out in terms of if we end up doing bigger deals or not, but definitely 300, maybe as much as many as 1,000 founders. And so the credit scores are a way to quickly tell you like how we feel about your business. And we use some obvious things that you know about like churn, retention, but also we use a lot of things that people don't know about. And those are also indicators of, of health of a SaaS company. Okay. And, and when you think about, uh, you know, you've raised some money to kind of get this off the ground. You put obviously some of your money into it. Um, more to put more to put the funding in place, right? Just to be clear, it would be really silly for me to say I'm supporting bootstrap founders then go raise a bunch of capital. We raised a fund. Right. So, so we did not sell equity, right? I, I own almost all of FounderPath. So we, like there are other people in the space that I'm competing with that are raising gobs of equity capital that have diluted themselves down to like 10, 12, 15% of the business, right? And then say they support bootstrappers, which is ridiculous. No, you, you're not living the bootstrap. Like you got to eat your own dog food a little bit here. So totally. we'll never go raise $100 million of equity capital. Now, will we raise a $500 million fund for bootstrappers? Absolutely. But we're not going to go raise a bunch of equity capital and get diluted. And is there any aspect of, of what you're doing to... Uh, help these companies continue to scale or put that money to use? Like, are you, are you thinking about any ways to use FounderPath as a community and obviously your growth strategies uh, to, to help them use that money and put it to use? Or are you strictly, we're going to hand you some money. It's fast. I watched your video with Andrew from MicroAcquire. It was like, what, six minutes from your first, and you guys were shooting the shit for the first two minutes. So we'll say four minutes from when he submitted the data to, to when the money was sending to his bank account. But, you know, what's that like long-term plan or relationship with the startups? Or is it as much as log in line, get some money and move on? So remember, our goal at FounderPath is to help bootstrap founders. Right now, that happens to be with just capital. But there's a lot of founders that use FounderPath just for our reports. Like we do free reports. We help people put together their profit and loss. We'll help people do taxes with one click at some point. But something beautiful happens, which this is sort of a special thing we keep inside of our community. When you click the purple button inside the interface and pull your first tranche of capital, whether it's a grand or 10 grand or a million dollars, a beautiful screen pops up after that and after we wire. And that screen, people have looked at it and said, oh, my gosh, I've paid people 10, 20, $30,000 a month to help me with this stuff. But that screen shows people where we think they should spend the money to drive growth. And there are some things on there that you would just have never thought of. But we've been able to distill a lot of these growth metrics from two places, pure data on FounderPath, and then qualitative data that I gather directly from interviewing CEOs that we figure out how to customize and actually build into our UI. Very interesting. I did not realize that. See, that's why I asked. Smart. One step ahead of me. Um, and, and, and as you as you see the uh, customers coming in, right, there's, there's, to our conversation earlier, you know, our customers are, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, 1 million to 5 million kind of ARR startups. I would say those are kind of the top 20% of our customers. The, the, the long tail of, of clients that we have are people that are pre-launched or just launched, right? They're testing an idea, they're makers. These are folks that have started multiple businesses. A lot of uh, them were either successful or, or failures, right? Um, where does the makeup of your customer, like where does FounderPath come into play in their life cycle? Is there a monthly recurring revenue kind of basement that you need to hit before you can really start to get involved with, with raising some capital there? Yeah, the smallest deal we've done is with a founder that was doing just $3,000 a month in revenue. So we can get we can get involved pretty darn early. 
we have founders that are doing as much as a million dollars a month in revenue using FounderPass. So it, it really can span the gamut there. Okay. And uh, I guess last, last question, one, this one's a little bit for me, and we've talked a lot about this on the podcast. Uh, you've done, of anybody, I mean, you literally have turned it into a magazine. You've done a good job of taking one piece of content and turning it into hundreds uh, and, and really taking your podcast, turning it into a, a media company. Uh, how do you go about executing on that? And how do you really make it so that you and yeah, I think you mentioned a variety of contractors can get all of this work done and keep the engine running really fast? Because we, we preach a lot of like one piece of content, distribute many ways, but I think you've taken it to the, the extreme. And I think it's really powerful to hear your thought on this. Yeah, you, you want to think about this a little bit like a bathtub, right? Where there's an input, there's an output, and then there's storage, right? So the input is you turn the faucet on and water goes in. That's like you investing your time, your energy, and money in your bathtub, which is your business. The drain is where resources leave. So salaries, software expenses, rent, that sort of stuff. The value of the bathtub increases as you're able to create more water in the tub with less input and less leaving. Right, so less inputs, you retain more profits, more more revenue. I think about this with media as well, and I would actually argue that attention today is yeah. more valuable than capital, because you see companies like Quibi with 2.6 billion raised, they can't spend all that money to get enough attention on Quibi to make Quibi work. You can't spend money to get attention anymore, so you have to build a media business. All of you listening right now, building no code tools, you've got to figure out what can you build a community around, because that is going to be your moat. Over anything else, that's going to be your moat. And the only way you can build a moat, an attention moat, a community moat at scale is to understand how can you take an hour of your time and then chop it up and get the most out of it. So for me right now, what that looks like is in one hour, I'll record three podcast episodes. They're 20 minutes each blocked up on my calendar and I record with each founder for 15 minutes. That one interview then gets cut up hun literally hundreds of ways. Now we stack these over time. We didn't start off saying, let's do all this at once. We just built one system, got it going, then layered on another, got it going. The first one was published to iTunes. Then a couple months later, we said, okay, now let's go on YouTube, right? Then we said, you know what? Let's take that podcast interview and format it, a transcription, and make it a part of the magazine, right? So now we've got one input of my time, one chunk of my calendar of 20 minutes it makes almost the whole business run from YouTube to the podcast, to the magazine, to founder path, to the book, to all this other stuff. And so that's what I encourage founders to think about is how can you get the most leverage off one hour of input of your time? And everyone I think has this uh, hesitancy to get started. I actually saw one of the marketing managers at, at SEMrush posted yesterday and I was tagging it like, how do you launch a podcast? And it's like everyone I think overthinks it. Like I just hired somebody that knew how to edit it, create all the content for me. And like, I ordered a mic and I was just like, screw it, let's just start. Uh, how did you get started? Was it was it similar? Because you've obviously built the systems now, but I assume at first you, you were either incredibly prepped or, or ill-prepared for it. Well, I don't want to launch a podcast that nobody listens to. Okay, that would be a massive waste of time. And frankly, there's a lot of people wasting their time putting out podcasts that nobody listens to. Now, if you have five listeners in there, all your target customer and it's a lot of influence, fine, I get that. But there's a lot of people wasting a lot of time producing podcasts with no audience. So you have to do both. <laughs> you have to do the 
you know, cross the I's, T's, dot the I's to do the, the stuff that you needed to do to actually produce the show, but you need an audience. And so we had an audience first approach for the podcast. I went out and I interviewed 60 founders and then went on launch day, emailed them and said, hey, I'm only going to launch with 10 of you guys. The first 10 that reply back and commit to emailing your list about your episode. And so on launch day, we had 10 of these go live from folks that agreed to promote. So that was like two, two and a half million emails going out on launch day. That's why we instantly sort of shot up. We got a million downloads in the first like two months. You know, now we just recently passed 13 million downloads and continue to scale over time. And how long have you been doing the podcast? One a day for five years. We launched in August of 2015. That's that's insane. <laughs> well, uh, Nathan, I guess last question, and you can say your own book because I'll, I'll be a I'll be a buyer on it. I'm I'm interested to read it. I, I've heard. Uh, a few reviews on it. It's obviously, from what I've heard, very tactical. You've obviously got screenshots in there. Um, you've got real things you can go apply. The tax return was the biggest issue. I, I, nice. I, I, I didn't run any of this by my legal team ahead of time. And they're going, Nathan, just so you understand, when you put, like literally I'm flipping to page six right now, when you put your tax return when you were 21 building your first company on page six, you're literally asking for the IRS to like come at you. But you know what? There's too many business books, as you know, out there with people just talking about something they've never done. And I said, you know what? In the first 10 pages, I'm going to lay it all out and say, listen, here it is. This is what we've done. Let's reverse engineer. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I read a lot of business books. Um, I think they're good in theory. Uh, and they're presenting mostly theories uh, in some cases. The, my favorite ones are the ones that have you know, traction is a good one, mostly because it has the workbooks. It kind of forces you to take the theory and start to apply it to, to what you're building. And, uh, you know, I, I'm excited about everything I've heard you say. Um, you know, one of the things you said recently was look at Chrome extensions in your space. And I spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, we've, we've now acquired one. It's not necessarily public news yet. It'll be very soon, but uh, huge win, I think, for us in the long term. It's going to be a great brand exposure. We actually integrated into our product today. So it's going to be like a great integration into what we've built and we didn't have to do much work for it. It's um, so much so, smarter to acquire tools oh. like this than to launch from scratch. That's why, I mean, when I look at the Kindle, Kindle will tell you which parts of your book got highlighted the most. Page 197, where I put an email screenshot of how I bought a Chrome extension, but then negotiated and actually they paid me 15 grand and end up taking it over. And it came with 200,000 users. It was by far the most highlighted section of the book. But I, I, for just the book is a little old now, right? It's two year, a year and a half yeah. old. I would tell people listening to this today, go run the same playbook, but look at the Zoom marketplace, right? Or new marketplaces, mm. the Shopify yeah. marketplace and go buy there. Those are those are great points. That's interesting that Kindle does that, by the way. I didn't know they were taking that data and giving it to the author. That's something else. Yeah, All you right. can tell. I mean, even as a consumer, when you read the book, it'll tell you how many people highlighted that part of the book. It'll say 380 other oh, people really? highlighted this part. Okay. Yeah. All right, good. I'm about to buy a Kindle. I'll be digging into that. <laughs> um, so, so two books you recommend every founder reads when... Uh, when they're thinking about launching or, or starting to build a business. So super tactical ones are great. Yeah, so there's two key things I think you need to uh, sharpen if you're going to build a great company, and that's your creative brain. That's how you find new things to do and new things to build that others haven't thought about. And then just your business side of the brain. Juice margin, be cutthroat when it comes to saving money and making money. So two books. The first is The Match King. Not a lot of people know about this book. It's very old, but it's a story about how a guy rolled up and built a match monopoly, like matches, fire matches, monopoly in Europe, and then used the tax discounts he negotiated with European countries 
to attract American investors as a tax shelter. It's a genius. It's it's basically like Peter Thiel's zero to one, right? And how he talks about yeah. local monopolies, but this guy actually did it in real life with matches. It's a great book. It's called The Match King. The other one I Where recommend- Where is that? What year was that business built? Oh my gosh. Decades, Are we talking like hundreds? Decades, okay, decades, decades ago. Yeah, All right. decades. I don't know how long, but decades. Uh, maybe like 80s, 82, 83, 1983. Okay. Um, the other one that's really good, and this is the creative side of your brain, is one called Storming the Magic Kingdom. This is the story of how private equity investors tried to take over the Walt Disney Company in 1982. And the tactics Walt Disney used, being as creative as he is, to beat these cutthroat private equity investors with billions of dollars of capital. It's fascinating to read. This one is really difficult to buy. You probably have to search for like a PDF floating around online somewhere, but it's called Storming the Magic Kingdom. Okay. Love it. Those are great recommendations and both new ones for our for our list, which is getting pretty extensive and we've had a lot of repeats. So Nathan, I appreciate it. Where can everyone find you and and more importantly, you know, find Founder Path when they're looking to to raise some capital that's not diluted? Yeah, I mean, if you're listening right now, especially a no-code tool, which we love, and you are bootstrapped with like a grand or two a month in revenue, go to founderpath.com, connect. I'll personally reach out to you, get an email. That's the way to get my email address too. Or if you just want to chit-chat, you can find me on Twitter at Nathan Latka. Awesome. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. This is a Zero to a Million podcast. Please subscribe if you want to hear more stories like this one and more strategies to scale. Nathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Zach. Thank you for listening to the Zero to a Million podcast brought to you by Unstack, the no-code marketing platform. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week for more startup insights and strategies.